Good morning. Is there anything wrong with these seats right here? Just kind of wondering. Dick, Mary, Carol, thank you. Look under your seat. There's a gift card for all three of you. So, yeah. You're kind of on that side. That's like, you know, like it'd be better if you were second row in front of me, Colton, mainly so I can keep an eye on you. Let's pray. God, you're good and you're great. And you are greatly to be praised. And God, it is so good to, to sing praises to you, the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And God, I thank you that we can sing because you've done marvelous things and you continue to do marvelous things in our life. And um, Lord, I pray that you'd meet us, meet every individual here. Um, that is uh, come in singing a maybe a different song uh, from a hard week. God, I pray that we would leave here today singing a new song, being reminded of your uh, grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and our adoption uh, into your family. We love you. We give you this service. Ask God that you would give me the grace I need to be able to proclaim your excellencies. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said... Amen. So we are um, continuing, we're finishing our One Another series. Um, this will be the eighth sermon in this series. And we've titled it, Sing to One Another. Not sing with one another, but sing to one another. And my prayer is, is that, well, I just prayed it. My prayer is that, that you, would, you would be struck with the power of songs that are biblical and singable and that you, wherever you're at in your journey of singing, congregational singing, that you would take that next step of um, just belting it out more than you ever have for, for, for God's glory and for the edification and encouragement of other believers. Martin Luther said this. He said, My heart, which is so full to overflowing, has often been solaced and refreshed by music when sick and weary. Someone else said, music is the inner universal language, bless you, of mankind. Someone else said, beautifully music is the art of the prophets that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful gifts that God has given us, music. Throughout Scripture, the command to sing is given to God's people more than 400 times. Does that surprise you? More than 400 times we're commanded to sing. We're told in Zephaniah 3.17 that God sings over us. That our God is a singing God and that he sings over us. My personal journey is, I mean, I love music. I mean, I love music. And I, and I often ask God, like, why did you, like, like gift me to sing, to play a guitar or a flute like Jethro Tull or something like that. Like, give me a gift. Over the years, I've had albums and A-tracks and cassettes, and now I have music that's stored on both Amazon um, and Apple Music. Music connects to my heart. I've been known in the middle of a workout to bust out in singing, only to glance over at my wife, who's shaking her head, and I get back to my barbell. There's been other times during a workout on, on, on Country Thursday where they play country music where I go into a deep, dark depression. <laughs> Vegans in country music. Everybody's a closet singer. Everybody's a wannabe musician at some level, if you're, if you're honest. Does anybody else sing in the shower or in the car or in the kitchen? Bust out dancing, maybe when there's nobody else around or you want to be silly. Music is both powerful and it's sticky. I don't remember one lecture that I sat under in high school or college. But I can be driving down the road and something will remind me of a song from 30 years ago that I still know the melody. I think it's a melody. And, but I definitely know the words. It may not sound like a melody but I know the words to it. Music is powerful. It's crazy. Music is God's common grace it's, uh, to all of humanity. 
that every human being is made to enjoy music in the same way that we're made to enjoy a sunrise or good food or hike in the mountains. God made us to enjoy music of every kind. Country is questionable. I've always liked music. I love to sing, but not necessarily with other people. When I first experienced congregational singing, I was quite frankly caught off guard. I was moved by the lyrics and the sound of voices singing around me that sounded like they really believed what they were singing. Yet it seemed kind of awkward for me to join in as I didn't have a very good singing voice and I was fearful about what others might think. And I think that fear comes from back at Our Lady of Fatima when I was in grade school and we're doing a performance up on the bleachers or whatever we were singing on and I was told before the performance just move your lips. <laughs> Probably need, to, need some counseling on that still. <laughs> ever since, ever since Jesus rescued me, I have loved listening to songs and to praise his name uh, through songs that minister to my heart and point me to the truth of the gospel. Now though, however, I'm not just a car, shower, gym, kitchen singer. I love singing with the saints on Sunday. And I don't care what I sound like, quite frankly, because I'm singing to an audience of one, vertical. But what you're going to hear here throughout this message is that there is an element of singing that is also horizontal, and it's really important, and I think we miss it. Music is a gift to humanity, and congregational singing is a means of God's grace given to the church to strengthen and build us up. So let me ask you, do you love music? Do you love singing? Do you love singing music in the congregational setting? Oftentimes our churches can be sterile preaching centers where the band plays up front in the congregation, and they sing to the congregation and the people just listen. Our body and the church globally, not just this church, but we can be like the people described in Simon Garfunkel's song, The Sounds of Silence. And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never shared, and no one dared disturb the sound of silence. Congregational singing is not a cultural add-on to an otherwise biblical Sunday gathering. It's a beautiful and vital gift from the Lord that enables the Word of God. Singing, congregational singing, allows the Word of God to penetrate and dwell deeply into the minds and hearts of God's people. And I'm not, I'm not simply talking about listening to music in the car or at home or listening at Sunday gathering. I'm talking about selfless, loving, courageous, participatory, congregational singing where everybody is raising their voices in unison in, with thankfulness in our hearts. So today we're going to, as, as Lynette read, we're going to teach through Colossians 3, 12 through 16. Um, I'm going to really focus on verse 16. And in verse 16, I'm going to focus on the part about singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Um, and I pray, I, my prayer is, is that you will, you will um, be able to leave this service with a better understanding of what it means, what congregational singing is all about, and a resolve to sing loudly. Let's take a look at Colossians. So Paul's letter to the Colossians follows the same trend that Paul has, the same structure that he has in all of his letters. The first part of his letter are the biblical, uh, are the uh, indicatives. Uh, the second half are the implications. The first half of Paul's writings, are he talks about um, doctrine. Uh, the sec second half he talks about culture, how we live that doctrine out. And so this is really important, and I've mentioned it a number of times in this sermon series, because we have a lot of uh, Bereans here. We have a lot of people in this body that love God's Word. Praise be to God, because we are a Word-centered church. But the goal of studying and reading the Bible is not just to mine out these cool truths about, look what I found. Um, it is fun. It is cool. But if you're not asking the question, um, God, how do you want me to respond to this? What do you want to do with this truth of my life? So what, God? Now what? 
How do you want me to respond? That's Paul's pattern. And so, um, so let me read to you um, Paul's prayer at the beginning of Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Um, this, this prayer sets the stage for how Christians can live. You can hear both indicatives, um, doctrine, who Christ is and what he's accomplished, and then you can also hear imperatives, how now shall we respond? Listen to this prayer. And this is a prayer for the church then and a prayer for us today. And so from the day we heard, Paul said, from the day we heard that you came to Christ, you became a Christian, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul's praying that they would, that they would have the knowledge of God's will, that it would, that would go in their ears and into their brain, that they would understand what the will of God is that's written in his word. But listen to this. Verse 10, so as, or therefore, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, this is talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. The word of God is supposed to produce something in us. It's supposed to produce a greater desire and resolve to love God and love people. Given th- verse 12, given thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So as, as gospel knowledge, as biblical knowledge um, roots itself um, deeper in our heart, we will, in an increasing ways, in progressive, in more progressive ways, live out the gospel for God's glory and for our joy and for the good of other people. And then fast forward to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is where Paul finishes up the first half of his letter. This is the end of the indicatives. Um, and he writes this in, I'll just summarize verses 1 through 4. He says, you have been raised with Christ, believer. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. He says, therefore, when Christ returns or takes you home, you will appear with him in glory. So he, he, this is an indicative. You've, been, you've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, um, and your life is hidden with Christ. That, that anything that is promised to Christ is promised to you, that you will be in glory with him one day. And then starting in verse 5 of chapter 3, he begins to lay out the implications of the gospel. So what? Now what? How should we live now that we have new life in Christ? He says in verse 5 and 9, he says, put to death what is, what is earthly in you and put off the old self and its practices. Put on the new self, uh, in verses 9 and 12, put on the new self as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You see, here's the deal, is that that if you know Jesus Christ, you have died with Christ. You have been buried with Christ, and you've been raised with Christ. But we don't always believe that. You see, we want to keep putting on the old man or the old woman. And what Paul's saying is, he says, put on who you already are. Put on the new self. And then in, in verse 14, he says, above all, this is all throughout Scripture, above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Paul says that we need to put this new identity on. This, this, is, the, this is the battle of every Christian, is believing the lie, uh, uh, rejecting the lies of the enemy and believing the truth of the gospel. And a lot of it is identity-based that you walk into this place after a hard week and you believe the lies of the enemy. And the lies of the enemy wants to say that, well, you're not accepted. You had a horrible day yesterday. How can God forgive you? You're walking in the church and you just had an argument with your spouse. You barked at your children. You cheated at work. You looked at something you shouldn't have looked at. And the enemy says, well, you're not worthy. And, and God says, I've made you worthy by the shed blood of Jesus. That's the battle of every Christian. And you know what? Truth leaks. Truth leaks. We forget. So we need to constantly be reminded of these gospel realities in our own life. We need what Paul prayed for. We need need to pray for one another, and we need to stand in the truth so that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That puts us in verse 16, and Paul says it a different way. 
He says, let the word or message of Christ dwell in you richly. And by the way, in verse 16, this is the only imperative. It's the only imperative. It's, we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly means that we are to have lives that are saturated with the living and active word of God so that we can stand in our identity and fight off the lies of the enemy and fight off the deceit of the flesh that still resides in us. The word of Christ is the overarching narrative of Scripture that, that points to um, the, uh, the perfect life of Jesus, um, his death, and his resurrection. The Word of God is the food that roots and strengthens us. We die without it. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 1 through 3, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is a man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, God's Word, he meditates day and night. And when he does that, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Jesus, fully God, fully man, at the beginning of his, of his public ministry, he went into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. And he was tempted three times by Satan. And one of the times he was tempted, Satan told Jesus, like, there's rocks there, why don't you turn it into bread and eat? And this is what how Jesus responded to Satan. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And where do we find every word that comes from the mouth of God? It's in the living, active, breathing, abiding word of God, 66 books in this Bible that we get to have in written form on all of our devices and we can consume whenever we want to. You see, the Word of Christ is the food that we need in order to joyfully walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Next, Paul instructs us how to let the Word of God dwell in us. How do we do that? 16b, he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all his wisdom, in all, all wisdom, excuse me, singing, hall, uh, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our heart to God. He says that we're to teach one another, admonish one another, and sing to one another. What do all three of those have in common? To one another. That doesn't mean that the Word of Christ doesn't take root in us as we spend individual time meditating on God's Word in our devotion time or, or spending time as a family or in your, um, on your own at a, at a coffee shop. Paul's simply pointing out the importance of Christians discipling one another, which includes teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So it's good to spend time individually in the Word, but it's essential to be in the Word with other Christians. Lasting and ultimate wisdom is found in the timeless truth of the Word of Christ. That's what, that's what he's saying here. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Not my wisdom, not, not crafting a sermon or, or crafting um, a lesson for community group. Um, it's God's wisdom. This is God's wisdom. Paul talks about in Colossians 2.3. He says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says to Timothy in 3, 6, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, he says, all Scripture, the wisdom, God's wisdom, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There's actually indicatives and impl implications right there that we're given God's Word so that we would be equipped and complete for every good work. The food and wisdom that we need is a living and active Word of God. Without it, we will default to our own limited human wisdom, and we will spiritually starve and shrivel. We're to teach and admonish others, one another, with godly wisdom, so that the Word of Christ would dwell richly in us. To teach and admonish sounds like just what it is. To teach is to impart biblical doctrine. To, to admonish is to warn or caution with biblical doctrine. 
That's what it means to teach and admonish. And we do that. We impart doctrine to one another to encourage one another to live it out for His glory, our joy, and for the good of one another. Unashamedly, WCC is a word-centered church. Um, our, our Sunday gathering is planned around the Word. Our community groups are around the Word. We believe the message of Christ is central to the health and growth of Christ's church. On Sunday, it happens to be a monologue, monologue mostly, right here. Community groups, I hope it's not monologue. I hope it's more of a dialogue uh, where, where everybody's teaching teaching one another. He goes on next to say, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. We are taught and admonished by the songs that we sing. Specifically, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I'm not going to, I think those three are basically synonyms. But I think what all three of them mean is that we, there are songs that are biblical and they're singable. Why would he tell us to sing songs that are biblical if they're not singable? And we certainly shouldn't sing songs that are singable, have a good melody, that aren't biblical. That's what I believe he's talking about there. Our primary audience in singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is the audience of one. It's the eternal God, the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And we sing because we have new life. We sing a new song because we have new life. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 98, 1-4. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in the joyous song and sing praises. A joyful noise. We have a new song. The day that Jesus brought you in to his family, you have a new song. However, each week we all walk into this gathering, every one of us, with a particular playlist or soundtrack of our heart that is formed by the previous week. And the playlist or soundtrack that you walk into this might be formed by like an unbelievable week. But oftentimes the playlist and soundtrack of our heart that we walk in with has been formed by a hard week. Sometimes we come in with our hearts singing fear, sadness, hurt, anger, and unforgiveness. The ongoing song that rules your heart, believer, will set the agenda for your behavior and your relationships. So when we come together and we start singing, we surrender the song that we walked in with to the greater and more glorious song of our Redeemer. The songs we sing in this gathering address our sin and, and God's grace and our hope, and they meet us when we're tired and weary and weak and sad. C.S. Lewis believes singing completes our faith. And he explained it in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. He said this, he says, I think we delight to praise, in song he's talking about, what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is, it is, it is its appointed consummation. This is why I believe that some of our pastoral heroes, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle, they not only preached good sermons, they wrote hymns. Other leaders like Richard Baxter and John Calvin produced hymn books. Here's the deal. Truth leaks. Truth leaks. But songs are sticky. 
Songs are many sermons that play on repeat in our souls over the days and weeks and months and years. I guess you don't know, my guess is you don't know of any lines from John Wesley's sermons by heart. But if you spend any time in church, you probably know multiple lines of the songs that his brother Charles wrote. Songs like, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, and Can It Be, I just want to bust out singing, and oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, the list goes on. We preach and teach the Word of God on Sunday, but we also sing the Word of God so that the Word of God might more richly dwell in us. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. Over the years, I've noticed that people stay in the Welcome Center until the singing's just about over. And they can get here for the meat of the service. And I don't want to downplay the preaching of the Word because it is a centerpiece, but i got to tell you a close second in the way we do it here in the songs that we sing, which are biblical, that you're missing out on a feast when you're not here singing with the saints. I've heard people describe the difference between preaching and singing as head and heart. It's unfortunate. It's untrue. I actually reject it wholeheartedly because preaching, if it's just for the head, like I want to be done preaching. Because the last thing I want to see is a church with biblical, uh, literate people with fat heads walking around and not loving God or loving people. So the Word of God comes through the ears, into the brains. He's given us an intellect. We process it, and it's pressed into our hearts so that we have, we're progressively transformed. And music works the same way. It's not about emotion, but it should stir our affections. But it's biblical truth that goes through our ears, into our brain, into our hearts. And we sing it. The goal of preaching and singing are the same. It's the transformation of the heart. So yes, we are made to sing a new song to the God who made us new and is making all things new. But don't miss this, that we're called to sing to one another. We're called to sing vertically and we're called to sing horizontally. We teach the word from the pulpit and we teach it through the songs we sing. But the teaching of the songs we sing, the teaching isn't done from up here in the singing. These are lead worshipers. Amazingly gifted people. In many churches, um, they're the teachers because people just come in and wait for a show and just sit there in the same way that they're, like we sit underneath the preaching, uh, preaching of the Word. But it's not to be that way. You see, when we open our mouth in congregational singing, we become Sunday school teachers. You may think the most loving thing to do for your neighbor is not sing. Just lip it. Just mouth it. It's a, lip, it's a you know, lip-syncing church. But actually, the most loving thing you can do to your neighbor is to belt out a joyful noise to the Lord. We were, my wife and I, Nancy and I, were at a conference for pastors and wives in Palm Springs. And it had to be sometime between 2007 2008. And remember, I know, the reason I know that, it was one of the hardest times of our life. We had some of the most significant trials of our life. And I remember like it was yesterday, we both do. And we were there singing with the saints, belting out the song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. 
that he gives and he takes away, still my heart can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And our hands were raised. We were sobbing like we were alone in the room. My good friend Kevin Wolf, one of the pastors at Mountain View Community Church, came up to me afterwards. By the way, Kevin knew everything that was going on in our life. Knowing everything that was going on in our life and seeing us weeping and praising the Lord like we actually believed what we were singing, he says it caused him to worship. Like just words from the platform could never do. We didn't... We. We weren't aiming for that. We didn't even know that was a thing, quite frankly. And as Nancy and I were talking about this the other day, she reminded me of a trip that we took with our kids, I don't know, a number of years ago. It was over spring break, and I'm not a real planner. I'm a planner with some things, but not all things. And we just got in our car and said, we're just going to drive south until the thermometer hits 80. And we ended, up in, we ended up in Albuquerque, staying on a Native American reservation. Yeah, but went to a church that I've always heard of. It was Calvary Chapel. The pastor was Skip Isaac, and at the time I was pretty drawn to their methodology, so I wanted to go, their ecclesiology. And we went in there, and if you know anything about Calvary Chapel, they record, they have radio shows, and they record it. And so we decided not to go in. This is my version, by the way. You got a different version. I should tell you your version. But we were going to go into the, uh, into the worship center, and I thought, but I found out they had an overflow center. The church is so big, like they've got these bleachers where people sit and they watch the service on a screen. And I chose to take my family into the, the place with the screen, even though there was room in the other place. And Nancy told me she, both her and my daughter Natalie were kind of whining about it, um, which I didn't know at the time. And, but the way my wife describes it is that she was whining about it until the, the woman sitting on the bleacher right below her was just sobbing with her hands raised, and it just melted Nancy's heart that she could be in that room with other saints singing praises to God, and that she could be taught by the words and the actions of this woman. We don't know what was going on with her, but it was worshipful. I've seen this a number of times in our church, and you won't experience it until you deep into community in a, in a, um, you dive into community in a deep way. When we know what's going on in the lives of people, we have a dear sister in this body that just lost her dad this week. Others of you have lost loved ones. Some of you are struggling with sickness. Others of you are wrestling in your marriages. When we know one another's burdens, and we can come alongside and bear one another's burdens, and when I see you um, knowing that you're wrestling, um, praising and singing God like you believe what you're singing, you know what it does for me and the people next to you? It teaches them. It teaches them that God is real and that he's alive and that he's active and that he's near to the brokenhearted. Dane Ortland said this. He says, what a church sings tells you what they believe. You want to know our doctrine? You can probably tell it by what's preached on Sunday morning and what's sung on Sunday morning. Sang, sung. I don't know which is right. On Sunday morning. So Dane Orland says, what a church sings tells you what they believe. Listen to this. How they sing tells you if they really believe it. We started the One, and Near, one Another series off with love one another because it's the foundation and the motivation of all the other one another's. We love because he first loved us. We sing because he first sang over us. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst. That's true for us today. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Got my mind, I didn't have this second service, but hush Little baby, don't you cry. That God sings over us. That he is near to us. And when we sing in the congregation, we're loving the person next to us as Christ loved us. This, this truth 
of horizontal singing should change the way that we approach singing together on Sunday. Congregational singing, I'll say it again, is vertical first, horizontal second. Our songs are expressions of faith and thankfulness to our all-sufficient God, but simultaneously they're a means of teaching and admonishing one another. Both take place at the same time. We exalt God and we, and we edify one another. This isn't, this isn't strange if you think about it. We're familiar with the idea of addressing multiple audiences at one. Um, we might have our grandson Oliver over. And I might um, know how Oliver was really a good brother to his little brother, um, Callahan. And what I'll do is I'll, while I'm winking at Oliver, I'll tell Nancy, hey, Nancy, did you hear about what a good job Oliver did today in loving his little brother? That's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're doing here. We're, we're singing to God like we believe it, and other people get to hear it. And it's teaching and admonishing one another while we're singing. We sing together to both receive spiritual edification from the singing of others and to give encouragement and edification to others by singing. So we need to sing. We need to sing a joyful noise unto the Lord. And I want to just throw this in there. Congregational singing, even if it's not our aim, it is missional. In the same way that loving one another, that, that the outside world will know that we're Christians by what? Our love for one another. The way that we treat one another. Um, in our homes, in our marriages, in our church. When, when we sing songs of praise that are biblical and singable to our good and faithful God and to one another, unbelievers hear it. Your unbelieving spouse hears you singing like you really believe it. Your children hear you singing the songs like you really believe it. The sight and sound of a congregation singing praise to God together is a radical witness in a culture that rejects God and embraces individualism. Singing together is countercultural. But that's precisely why it's important. Other than the Jewish faith, it's the only religion where people sing together. Some chant, but it's the only religion, if I could call Christianity that, where we sing songs of melody to our eternal God. It's actually kind of weird, but it's so awesome. Our songs are the public manifesto of what we believe. Singing can never save anyone, but it can certainly draw them to the throne of grace. It's the gospel that saves. So let me finish with this. Let me answer uh, this question. What makes for good congregational singing? The songs need to be well-written. They need to be well-chosen. And they need to be well-sung. First, well-written. The songs that we sing in this church, we ask, are they biblical? If they're not biblical, we don't sing them. Next, if they're biblical, we ask, are they singable? Are they, are they, they have notes or melodies and all that stuff that we can sing along with. And the next question we ask is, has it been, are these songs elder approved? Biblical and singable songs pass the test of time. There's great hymns that pass the test of time that are biblical and are singable. If you assemble any Christian group, practically everyone can join you in singing amazingly great, Amazing Grace with both passion and confidence. There's also many great songs that are being written today that will stand the test of time. Chase has written one of those that we're going to sing here in a little bit. I pray that it stands the test of time because it is biblical and it's singable. Next, after, after, um, after well-written, is well-chosen. We choose songs from the canon of songs that are both biblical and singable, and then we sing ones that are relative. I know that's a word that like the hair went up in the back of your necks. Here's what relative means. Every Sunday... We're preaching a particular sermon from a particular text that has a particular point. 
And most of those sermons are in a book of the Bible. We just finished eight weeks on the one another. That's today. We start the book of Malachi next week. We'll spend nine weeks in that. And you're going to see that the songs that Chase and his team are picking are some way, somewhere um, um, connected to that. Um, the, the theme of the Malachi sermon series is the unchangeable love of God. So my guess is, is you're going to see some songs that speak to the unchangeable love of God. So they need to be, they need to be um, uh, well-written, well-chosen, and then next they need to be well-sung. Don't misunderstand me. You don't have to sing well. But it needs to be well-sung. Like, the point of the worship team isn't to drown us out. The goal is, is to drown them out. We sing because God sings over us. We sing because He is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. We sing to one another in order for the Word of Christ to dwell richly in us and in one another. And let me just give you a bonus here at the end. And this is, um, I thought I would have more of this, but I feel like it's really a, a it's a, we need a whole other sermon. Um, you'll notice, and maybe you do this, is that a lot of people raise their hands while singing. And there, there is a description in God's Word to raise hands while singing. There is no prescription. You're, you're free to do that or free not to do that. But I remember when I first experienced congregational singing, and I'm see, watching others, like, belting it out with their hands raised. I'm like, what is that all about? And then I, and with my hands in my pocket, and then I just notice as I'm starting to understand the words, and they're ministering to my heart, and I'm being taught. And the Word is richly dwelling in me through the singing of other people. I notice that like my hands are like starting to come out of my pocket a little bit. And it's like, I can't do that. And the main reason I couldn't do that, I'm going like, what if somebody sees me or asks me, why are you raising your hands? And I go, I don't know, but I just can't help it. And that's really my best explanation. It says, however the Lord is calling you, first of all, singing is a command. And it's not just for those who can sing. It's a gift given to Christ's church. But wherever you're at on the continuum, um, if you're singing a little bit, sing more. If you're singing more already, sing louder. If, you're, if your hands are, one hand's in your pocket and the other one's out, try getting the other one out. And just be free though. But let the Spirit of God lead you. My wife has told me oftentimes, and hopefully this is okay, honey, I'll ask for permission later if it's not, but like she, both of us are like, we're like closet charismatics. And what I mean by that is, is that we, like, if we had freedom, we'd like do more. But she, she said sometimes, like, I just, like, this song makes me want to go prostrate on the ground. And I go, honey, like, if the Spirit's leading you to do that, just do that. Let the Spirit of God lead you, but make sure it's the Spirit of God. Take the next step. In church, let's sing to one another until we're on the other side, singing to and with one another in the house of Zion. We'll be, we'll be singing a new song. We'll never have the old song in our heart. We'll be singing a new song at the table where there's no sin, there's no suffering, and there's no death. So let's not, let's, let's not stop singing until we're singing with Jesus. And when you can't sing, when you walk in and the trials of the week are so uh, overbearing and you're so overloaded, let the Word of Christ dwell deeply in you as you soak in the singing of other saints. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are so good. And... Um, you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And Lord, I, I don't know what it's going to look like in heaven. I do know that we're going to praise you unencumbered, that we're going to live fully for you without any sin, without any trials or suffering. I know, God, that we're going to sing a lot, and I know that it's going to be a joyful noise. God, I don't know if my singing voice is going to be any better God, I hope it is. That may be awesome to be able to sing great and play guitar or something. But God, I just thank you that today that you've called us to sing. And I thank you that you've given us a new song in our heart. And it is a result of the marvelous things that you've done in our life and that you continue to do. 
So God, I pray that you would grow us, that we'd not manufacture singing or manufacture um, a loudness or manufacture um, raising our hands because of emotion, but we would be so overcome by the richness of your word, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can't help but sing praises to your name. And God, I pray that we'd be cognizant of others too, that we would love others by singing loudly. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Pastor. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Amen. So um, here at WCC, um, this is something that we take very, very seriously, and we want to shepherd and steward that well. And so you're going to hear a lot in these next couple minutes a term called undistracting excellence, and that's what we strive for here um, on this worship arts team, whether it's down here or up top. Um, And so we will try to sing and play and serve in such a way that people's attention will not be diverted from the substance Jesus by shoddy, unprepared ministry, nor by excessive finesse, elegance, or refinement. In other words, we want to come prepared so that we aren't hitting wrong notes and singing wrong lyrics, although I have done that. <laughs> so thank you for grace. Uh, but at the same time, on the, on the opposite side, we don't want to be a distraction by having a bunch of lights and smoke and all these ripping guitar solos and all that because that is trying to manufacture some sort of production that puts the spotlight on man. And it's not about man at all. Everyone on the worship arts team has heard the term undistracting excellence on repeat from me. And John Piper was the one that coined that term. And it speaks so loudly to ministry as a whole. But it speaks really loud in the context of music. Natural undistracting excellence will let the truth and beauty of God shine through. And hear me on this. Our aim in a worship arts team In any ministry, our aim is to make much and pursue Jesus through undistracting excellence. Jesus is our aim. How we do that is through undistracting excellence. God the creator, the one who made everything out of nothing, has provided us with a multitude of gifts and resources and all of our creative expressions of worship. We will seek to honor the Lord by skillfully stewarding what he has given us with undistracting excellence and passion. We will hone our various crafts with zeal in order to glorify the name of Jesus vertical, put the gospel on display, and edify the church horizontal. Amen. So um, in PLI, uh, back maybe a month ago or so, um, we wrote or read this book called uh, Corporate Worship by Matt Merker. And he made a statement um, and an argument that totally shattered my world. (laughs) Because I had always told and grew up and even said that worship in the context of music was for an audience of one. And it's true. It's true that God is our primary audience. But I would submit to you, Dan would submit to you, and Paul would submit to you in Colossians 3 that there's a secondary audience and that's one another. And I'm, as I'm wrestling with this paradigm shift, like literally when I got hired here, audience of one, audience of one, and I'm reading this book, and it's just shattering me. And I'm thinking, how, how practically has this played out in my life? And there's several of you that we've had a meal together, and we have prayed together, we have cried together. Um, over difficult seasons in your life. And I wasn't going to do this. And we pleaded with God, help, get us out of this season. And then when I see you here on Sunday on this side, and I'm looking out, and I see those same people that I am crying with, and I'm praying with, 
and saying, God, I don't get it, but help. And I see you worshiping and lifting your hands and just going crazy like you're the only one in the room. That stirs me up, causes me to worship. And it edifies and encourages my soul. And it lets me know, watching you in the midst of difficulties, uncertainties, and pain, it lets me know that God is for me. And nothing, absolutely nothing can separate me from the love of the Father. And no matter what I may go through, Jesus is better. Amen? And that's what we do. It's not just here. But that's what we do. We see each other. We know what we're going through. We're in community. We know the pains and struggles and difficulties. And we see one another singing in spite of those things. And that encourages us. It edifies our soul. So back in April, um, me and a couple of other worship pastors were tasked to write two songs uh, for a pastors and leaders retreat that we have every year called The Huddle. And the text um, that was given to us to write these songs was out of Psalm 23. And the theme of this was God, our great shepherd. And at this particular time in this season for these pastors and these leaders, we needed to be reminded that God loves us and cares for us and we can find rest in him. That he's our protector and our provider. And so as we were writing this song, we put this song through the criteria. And I, I said this last time, but I do like country music. So there you go. <laughs> oh. But as we were writing this song, we put it through uh, what Dan was talking about earlier. Um, we wanted to make sure this, the, this song was theologically accurate. We, secondly, we wanted to make sure that the song was singable. We wanted to make sure that the song was accessible, meaning, do we understand it? Do we understand the lyrics? What do these lyrics mean? Is there any word in there like Ebenezer that we just don't get? <laughs> you know what I mean? And then lastly, the, do the overseeing elders and pastors approve of this song? So they get the lyrics, they listen to it, and make recommendations or say, yeah, good to go. And so uh, we're going to sing one of these songs that, uh, that we wrote and uh, called Bring Me Back. And as we sing this, um, I want to encourage you, as you are singing this song, that first and foremost, we are worshiping to an audience of one. We're singing to an audience of one, and that is our primary audience. But at the same time, as we're singing this song, think of those in your community. Think of those in your, in your community group or uh, family members or someone that's close right now in this room, and think about singing that to them. <laughs> 